0: Let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. What a strange follow-up to Easter Sunday. Last week, the tomb is empty and light is streaming forth and Jesus is alive. And today we're back in a dark room. A group of disciples sitting in a house and it's getting dark out, it's evening, the shutters are tightly closed, the doors are locked. They're sitting there afraid that people might come and find them and afraid that they made one big fat mistake by following Jesus. Behold, the chosen people, the royal priesthood, the holy nation. The ones who just three days ago fell asleep in the garden and fled as their Lord was taken, tortured, and crucified. Those ones are now sitting afraid and isolated. And yet, here appears Jesus choosing them once again. Right in the middle of the darkness and disappointment, Jesus shows up and declares peace. he." be with you. What strange words. I think I probably would have gone with a voila. (laughs) But Jesus' first word is peace. To you who still sit in darkness after the great light has dawned, peace. Peace is what this is all about. Peace is why Jesus has shown up in the middle of this group of people who have just deserted him. Peace is what the cross, the grave, and the empty tomb are all moving toward. On the cross, God revealed exactly how deep God's love is for us. God made a new covenant that was completely one-sided. God gave everything, God's very son, in order to be in relationship with us. The God of the universe risked it all, and we risked nothing. There was no promise that God's love would be returned, In fact, it looked likely that it would not be. Jesus was scorned and abandoned even by his closest friends. But God loved the world so much that God gave God's son, Jesus. God knew that we were weak and prone to falling away. And so the Lord proved once and for all that God's love is without conditions. That God's love comes right in the middle of the dark room we find ourselves fitting in. This is the good news. That God's will for us is to be at peace with our creator. And that the Lord has done everything to make that possible. That is what the cross is about. That is why peace is the risen Lord's first word to the disciples. But here's the thing about a one-sided love like that. Such a strong love is not without obligations on the beloved ones. It creates demands on us even stronger than if we were commanded to do something. And I want to share a story about what that's looked like in my own life. So the year after I graduated college, I was a part of this wonderful little small group. Our leader was named Cheryl, and Cheryl was an interior designer who had one of the most beautiful houses I've ever been in. So we'd sit around on our rattan chairs with soft pillows, and there'd be snacks arranged on the leopard print ottoman, and we'd read our Beth Moore book and talk about boys. Well, fast forward. (laughs) And one weekend, my friend Audrey is house-sitting for Cheryl, and I come over to hang out. We make popcorn in the microwave and then head out to catch a movie. I go home and Odd goes back to Cheryl's. And when she gets there, the house is billowing with smoke. Somehow, some way, the stovetop had gotten turned on. And the microwave, which was one of those units above a stovetop, had been melting on to that stovetop the entire two hours. Luckily, nothing had burned and their Basset Hound was fine. That's even, oh, that's even painful for me to think about, just their Basset Hound. But there was smoke damage throughout almost the entire house. Couches reaped, bedding was ruined, and all the walls and ceilings were smoke stained. It was, it, was, it was horrible. It was really horrible. Audrey and I were both so scared to see Cheryl and her husband, Bob. Well. Do you want to know what Bob said to Audrey when he first saw her? He said, we had been wanting to redo our kitchen anyways. And when I saw Cheryl at church, and I fell over myself apologizing, she immediately cut short my apologies and said that they had homeowner's insurance and that anyways, it was probably Ned the dog who had knocked the knobs on the stove or maybe even the stove shorted out and that I shouldn't be worried or ashamed at all. And then she hugged me. Who actually knows what happened that night? But do you know what Cheryl and Bob did in their response? They created peace. They didn't let any separation come between us. And here's the thing, I feel eternally loyal to Cheryl. I profoundly disagree with her now about political things, But her unconditional love created the kind of obligations you want to have. I love Cheryl. This is what Jesus does on the cross. Jesus creates obligations of love. Jesus is not some strict father who says, you have to obey me or else. Jesus is the one who loves us to the point where we can begin to love him back not have to love him back, but can love him back, want to love him back. This is an obligation, a tie, but it's a tie that unbinds. Jesus' power is not like the power of this world. It's not the power of harsher sentencing laws or college acceptance letters or the click of popular kids in high school. It is powerful and compelling and all-consuming, but it's also incredibly gentle. It's the power of love. It's the power that comes from forgiveness. In that power, he begins to tell us what kind of a community We are to be, if we are to be a community under the obligation, the untying tie of love. So, what is the obligation of love? Let's read on in our passage for today. Verse 22 Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. The central practice of this chosen people is the forgiving and retaining of sins. Now, I think most of us sort of have an idea of what forgiving sins look like. We here at PMC talk about forgiving, what it is, what it looks like, We've read Desmond Tutu's book, The Book of Forgiving. And if you haven't, you should, because it's so good. We know forgiving sins. It's this retaining sins business that sticks in our throat. I mean, the Lord's Prayer says, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. As we forgive. It seems to suggest that if we don't forgive, we won't get forgiven. Here, this baby church, this baby gathering of disciples is being told that their central practice is the forgiving and the retaining of sins. It's almost as if Jesus was suggesting that forgiveness wasn't fully accomplished on the cross, and even more troubling, that our own forgiveness might be dependent upon that fellow disciple who's sitting on their couch three screens over. It's troubling because if we can retain the sins of others, then our sins can be retained as well. Not exactly the words we're hoping to hear the Sunday after Easter. What did Jesus Possibly mean. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. What Jesus is saying is that being the people of God doesn't mean that God hovered the cursor over our sins, highlighted them, and clicked delete when Jesus died. Instead, God opened up forgiveness on the cross a forgiveness that involves the messy work of opening ourselves up to have others tell us the truth about who we are and then getting a chance to set what we've done right. In other words, the cross means the possibility of reconciliation, of being at peace with God and with one another. You see, on the cross, God told us the truth about ourselves. We saw that we were sinners in need of a savior as we deserted our Lord, mocked him, beat him, and killed him. We saw all our ugliness and pretensions to power held up before us as we saw the one and only true Lord dying on that lonely cross. With the knowledge of ourselves, that comes from constantly gazing at that, gazing at Jesus, we are able to escape the self-deception that plagues our lives. Our self-assurance is that we're pretty good people doing pretty good things in the world. We know that forgiveness is promised to us. We know that the work is finished, but as the theologian Stanley Hauerwas says, we have to refuse to buy the idea that forgiveness is simply a matter of being told that God has forgiven us. Forgiveness is a community process that makes discipleship possible. In other words, our obligation of love is to do the hard work of being reconciled to one another, which is none other than the difficult task of talking with one another when we've been sinned against. Now, there are some situations where talking is appropriate, or where differences of powers can make, a power can make talking downright abusive. But in many situations, talking is the right thing to do. And it turns out talking isn't an easy thing to do. Telling the truth is a risk. We have to show who we really are and how we really feel hurt, angry, bitter, despairing. Also, we may find that we weren't sinned against at all. It's just a misunderstanding. It's a vulnerable thing to talk with one another, but that is the work that Jesus is calling forth from us. A few years ago, I went on an Ann Tyler kicked and read eight of her books. There's the scene in her book, St. Maybe, that reminds me of the ties that unbind these obligations of love. In it, the protagonist, Ian Bedlow, has wandered into a storefront church feeling very guilty about a situation in his life. He sits down with the pastor, Reverend Emmett, and this is what transpires. Anne Tyler writes. In the light of Reverend Emmett's blue eyes, which had the clean transparency of those marbles that Ian used to call ginger ales, Ian began to relax. So anyhow, he said, that's why I asked for that prayer. And I honestly believe it might've worked. Oh, it's not like I got an answer in plain English, of course, but don't you think, don't you think I'm forgiven? Goodness, no, Reverend Emmett said briskly. Goodness, no, what an answer. It blew Ian away. I thought God forgives everything. Reverend Emmett agreed and then replied, you can't just say, I'm sorry, God. Why, anyone could do that much. You have to offer reparation, concrete, practical reparation according to the rules of our church. This process of being told by our brothers and sisters that we have in fact sinned and need to make things right through reparation is the obligation that God has put on us. Ian ends up dropping out of college and apprenticing himself to a carpenter because making things right for him means caring for three children and he has to provide for them financially. By making things right as far as he was able, Ian found out what it means for things to be put back into place. He found out the cost and that cost set him free from the powers of this world that had entangled him. In receiving a tie that bound him, he was unbound. He got full forgiveness a complete second chance, a new life. All of this is why Jesus' first word to the disciples is peace. Peace is what Christians call this complicated process of truth-telling, confrontation, reparation, forgiveness, and reconciliation. These are to be our practices if we are to follow Jesus. We are to work together to discern what sins need to be forgiven and what sins need to be retained in order for true forgiveness to come. Peace is our work, our work of love. The work that we do because we have seen who we are on the cross, and we have been given everything by God. Blessed be the tie that binds and unbinds. And so in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, peace, peace be with you. Amen. For Amen. Our-